Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Gait Analysis Studies at the Wheel, Foot and Ankle Institute, Bruce Williams. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by simplyfaster.com and that's spelled S-I-M-P-L-I faster.com. So alongside the free lap timing systems, simplyfaster.com currently holds the eccentric K-Box. So if you haven't heard of the K-Box, it's a new product that uses flywheel technology to allow higher velocity eccentric overload. So I saw the K-Box the first time when Mike Young from the US brought a couple over for one of his workshops in Gloucester. So off the back of that I was really keen to use one and I actually got my hands on one and was able to spend a couple of hours playing around with lots of different exercises and getting used to the K-Box. So from personal experience, getting out of the bottom of the squat, powering up and having the K-Box pull you through the floor on the way down is absolutely incredible. So basically, the harder you go on the concentric portion of the lift, the more it's gonna give you on the eccentric. So if you're gonna go for it, you're gonna get pulled through the floor. At simplyfaster.com, there's also a great blog from Frederick, who is one of the co-owners of Eccentric, so you can learn more about the K-Box there. So if you are interested in getting a K-Box, get to simplyfaster.com, so that's S-I-M-P-L-I, faster.com, and get a K-Box for yourself. Today's episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Push. So still, I'm still using Push in my own training recently with uh, a little bit less coaching going on. So one really exciting thing that Push have introduced over the last couple of weeks is the Reactive Strength Index. So a measure of uh, low body explosive strength as we know. So they've included that in their, their testing part of the app. So I've heard that the app is getting redesigned, which is really exciting making it a lot more kind of user-friendly. And one thing the guys at Push are really interested in is the feedback from the guys that have already got the Push Band. So if you have got a Push Band already, then the guys are really interested in, in your feedback and how they can make the experience better. So if you are interested in getting a Push Band, get over to trainwithpush.com. They also have a, an interesting newsletter so make sure you sign up for the newsletter and you can see how they're moving things along and incorporating the feedback they're getting from, from their users. So make sure you check that out. So today the guest is a little bit different, um, coming from a slightly different angle. So Bruce Williams was introduced to me by a, a former guest of the podcast. So really interested to get Bruce on and discuss uh, kind of all things ankle and foot related. So we discuss pressure mapping, how it works um, and its potential to prevent injuries. So it's been a bit of a topic of discussion on social media that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. So it's, uh, it's really interesting to get Bruce's his take on, on pressure mapping. So the importance of the foot and ankle and how it impacts, impacts things up the chain and the use of orthotics, which is a, an interesting um, topic from, that was a very selfish question from me. So I'm sure you'll get loads from the, the episode with Bruce. 
He's an expert in his field, so if you are interested in discussing anything with regards to kind of pressure mapping and basically anything with regards to the foot and ankle, whether you're wanting some uh, some advice on, on issues that you're seeing with your athletes, I know he's very up for uh, you getting in touch um, and maybe uh, shoot, him a, shoot him an email or just get in touch to have a chat about the issues that you're seeing. So it's a really interesting chat with Bruce, but just before we get on to the episode, just a quick reminder that episode two of the Pacey Performance webinar series is coming up with Ian McKeel, who is the head of athletic development at Port Adelaide. And that's gonna be a really interesting hour with Ian on the 29th of November at 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock GMT. So if you are interested in learning a little bit more about what Ian's going to be discussing, get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Ian. So really look forward to seeing there. It's going to be really good, uh, like I said, a really good hour um, with with Ian uh, and his presentation. But I'll leave you to get over to the episode with Bruce. Hope you enjoy it. I'd love some feedback on the episode and things that you're hearing so far. uh, And I'll speak to you soon. Okay, hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got uh, a contact uh, passed on to me through from Cal Vale, which was, um, which was great. So we've got Bruce Williams on the phone, who is the President uh, of Breakthrough Sports Performance uh, and Director of Gate Analysis Studies. So really interested to speak to Bruce because it's, it's an avenue we haven't been down yet, um, hence, hence the chat. So just want to get Bruce in to uh, give us a little bit of an introduction on uh, on himself and just thank him for giving his time up on a, a Monday afternoon to, to speak to me. So welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Oh, thank you very much. I, uh, my, my, my pleasure. Perfect. So do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction on, on yourself, your education and what you're currently doing? Uh, sure. I'm a podiatrist in the U.S. Um, I'm the director, currently the director of gain analysis studies at Wildfoot and Ankle Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I'm also the uh, owner and president of Breakthrough Sports Performance, where I do consulting for teams and uh, professional athletes. Um, past president of the American Academy of Podiatric Sports Medicine. Uh, primarily do uh, sports medicine, biomechanics, gait analysis, um, and uh, just uh, all around uh, stuff like that. That's that's uh, those are my interests. That's what I do. Cool. So, what kind of what kind of sports? Uh, what kind of athletes have you been working with? Uh, basketball, football, um, baseball, soccer, uh, you know, your football, um, just about lots of, uh, long distance runners, um, sprinters, uh, some high jump athletes, um, just about anything. I enjoy working with any type of sport. I like, I have a good feel for movement and in relationship to the foot and how that works. And it's just something that's and partly intuitive for me, but it's just, it's been a lot of study too. And I just, uh, I kind of get it and can work with that to, you know, either help people with specific issues where they're just having foot, foot, ankle pain or non-specific issues where more than likely there's a good chance it's related to the foot and the ankle. Um, but maybe it's higher up, whether it's the knee, the hip, the back, so things of that nature. Mm-hmm. I know we spoke a little bit before, but how do you know Carl? I know Carl, uh, from a few years ago. <laughs> Uh, from an online forum, asked him a question and uh, got to know each other there. So he's he's a he's a 
interesting man, knows lots and lots of people, and uh, never seeks never ceases to amaze me at all. <laughs> never. Cool. So he's been he's been quite active on online talking about pressure mapping these last uh, specifically these last couple of months. So I just want to get your take, and uh, I'm, I'm really inter- interested to hear more uh, how it works and and kind of its potential to p- prevent injuries. Yeah, um, you know, uh, injury prediction is one of the things um, that I've been working on for a while. With with that, uh, you know, pressure mapping gives you pressure and also some force analysis of what's going on specifically between the foot and the shoe or between the foot and an orthotic. If there's an orthotic in the shoe, any type of device, whether it's over the counter or custom, um, you can have people walk over long mats. You can have people walk over short mats and jump on those as well. You know, it's not, um, it's not force plates, which is going to give you triplanal axes, but uh, the pressure analysis fits a lot better into the shoe than a force plate does. And it's a lot more mobile. So um, because of that, you know, it has, it definitely has its advantages um, because you know, you don't, athletes don't perform, majority of athletes don't perform barefoot. So having them uh, run and jump off force plates, uh, you know, or even large pressure mats is not, it's only going to give you so much information. Um, Once the shoe comes into interaction, then that changes everything. And once uh, an orthotic comes in with the shoe, that takes things even further. And you really want to know what's going on. Is that shoe affecting um, their performance? Is that shoe potentially um, creating uh, opportunity for more injury because you know with a lot of uh, football or soccer shoes other things like that they've got uh, stud components uh, stiffness components um, whether they're low tops or high tops many of these different things and how they interact with um, artificial turf or, or natural grass and how those things can affect uh, let's say fifth metatarsal fractures for instance um, you know and there are things that you can pick up if you see early and prolonged pressures underneath that fifth metatarsal or fifth, uh, what we call the MPJ, which is the actual joint, you know, that can be an excellent sign that you've got to be aware that you're getting a lot of forces in that area for a prolonged period of time. And, you know, that could start to cause changes in the bone of the metatarsal and put them at higher risk for a fifth metatarsal injury or fracture at some point. Um, so, you know, you, but you know, it's, you've got to understand what's going on just because somebody gets a hot spot. Um, and a lot of people look at um, pressure map images uh, in stasis where they'll give you the, the um, peak pressures, which is a, a combination of all the different uh, photos because in within shoe pressure mapping, it's actually like taking a movie. So you set it to whatever speed or, or hertz that you want to capture. And 100 hertz is probably pretty normal for most uh, for most athletes. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's common. You can certainly go higher than that with some systems. Um, and not as high with others, uh, but you can work with that, and it's going to give you quite a few um, frames per second as the foot hits contacts at the ground, at the heel, moves forward, and the full foot's in contact, and then you move up onto your toes and propulse. Um, and, but knowing what's going on from a timing perspective from the left foot to the right foot and vice versa, um, and then quantifying, using that to quantify um, in a, uh, uh, an examination process, knowing how the foot really structurally and functionally um, uh, can fun, you know, can work and then quantifying it with the pressure mapping takes things to a whole new level, especially when you start adding the shoes and the turf or, or the hard court for basketball, um, hardwood for basketball or, or tennis or whatever other sport that it is that you play, uh, whether it's track and field or anything else. 
So, you know, it's a lot of information, it can give you a lot of information, uh, which can be hard to appreciate. And you do have to be careful because um, early on, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years, going on 16 years, and uh, still learn things new on a regular basis. But, you know, it's 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 easy to get confused or make, assu make uh, assumptions that can be detrimental when you first start working with this stuff if you really don't have an understanding of how the foot and the ankle truly works. Because most of the time now, since I've been doing it for so long, I can make a pretty good guesstimate by looking at somebody's foot, looking at them walk, how they're going to react when it comes to putting that in-shoe pressure in there. I'm still surprised regularly. There's no question about it. Um, and I definitely get some extra information on a much more hair-splitting level. Uh, as you can see, I don't have a lot to split anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that said, it, you know, it, it, it we fool ourselves into what we think we see going on. We, we uh, have a predisposition for what we think is happening with somebody. Uh, but once you put, start adding different layers of quantification into the mix, whether it's video, whether it's issue pressure, whether it's a combination, all of a sudden you've got extra stuff to look at and then you can go, oh, wait a minute, you know, what the hell was I thinking? I, I wasn't looking at this the right way. Let me reformat. Maybe, maybe even let me just turn that gem a couple of degrees to the left or to the right or up or down so that I can take a little look different perspective look at this and get a better idea um, and that's how I use pressure mapping you know it's um, some ways some people might consider it a safety net but I see no I have no qualms about that whatsoever it's just it gives me an extra perspective it's not like having an extra colleague along with you to to give your opinion it just gives you that uh, extra that much extra information to work with mm -hmm. so what what is the the actual insert that goes into the shoe what's it what's it look like feel like well, there are many different um, uh, devices out there. There's uh, PDAR systems, which I've not personally worked with, though I've seen them um, at, at university I've worked, where I visited and, and worked. Um, TechScan in shoe pressure is one I've used primarily um, for probably the last 15 years. And it's a paper thin insole. I mean, barely a, mil a millimeter thick. And it's uh, very uh, pliable. Um, it can be short lasting depending on how much it's abused. Um, but it will fit into shoes with very little uh, effect or even notice for most of the athletes whatsoever. Um, there's a new device coming out called Modicon, which is a little bit thicker, about three millimeters, and more akin to the, the thickness of a PDAR insole. And um, it's completely wireless and can give you a lot of information that way, too, because the other two systems do tend to have belts or at least uh, wires and uh, little things that attach to the ankles. The Modicon system is just an insole that slides right into your shoes and then you gather the data on that and you can download it. So they all have their pluses and their minuses. Um, it just depends on what you're comfortable working with and uh, how much information you actually need, uh, how much high definition you need in certain situations to either make a diagnosis or create um, an intervention or treatment plan for, uh, for an athlete. Mm -hmm. So I've just written down, how, how much are these? How much are these devices? Can the wireless uh, I can't answer for PDAR systems, although I think they're probably at the top of the line as far as expenses concerned, probably between uh, at least between fifteen to thirty thousand dollars. But again, I I don't know the PDAR reps. I know the F the F scan, which is an in shoe system for tech scan, ranges from ten thousand to fifteen thousand dollars on up. Um, I believe the Modicon system is probably going to run with different sensors, probably close to about ten thousand dollars as well, and that's all U.S. of course. So. So how much, how much data, I know you said you can collect all this data, how much data is, is kind of essential to, like you say, to, to create that intervention that you want in? 
Well, that's the that's a, an excellent question. And the reason that's a great question is because when I talk to um, uh, trainers and therapists, um, strength coaches, anybody, you know, anybody that, that uh, deals with athlete management, you know, they have this great vision. Well, we'll just suit them up and send them out there and have them play a practice game and we'll get all this information. And, you know, um, Carl has said, talked about information overload for a very, very long time. And he's exactly right. Um, you know, there, there becomes a point where everything has to be kept, kept in perspective. And by that, you've got to create a frame of reference for what you're working with. The easiest thing to work with for anybody that's dealing with in-shoe pressure is at least to start with a walking analysis to understand how an athlete walks. Most of what goes on in there is going to translate into running, not 100%, but quite a bit. Then you can move to running, and then you can move to lateral translation, cutting, jumping, other things of that nature. But you've got to have a baseline on which to start with. And beyond that, you also got to do a really good foot exam because everything starts from there. Um, and I have a very quanti- – we can talk about that later, but I've got a very quantified uh, segmental analysis system that I use uh, when I do my evaluations that then leads to me uh, uh, an enhanced understanding of what's going on with the, the pressure mapping. Um, but, you know, you, you want to keep a good frame of reference, left, right, left, right, understand what's going on, and then start to build from that. And once you've got that, then you can start to move with other things. But Movements are movements. You know, everybody, I know athletes do spontaneous things and people think, oh, well, he went up for a shot. That's why he blew out his ACL. But what they don't realize is that nobody was in five feet of him when he went up for that shot. Um, he'd gone up for that layup thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times, maybe for some of these athletes before they ever ruptured an Achilles tendon, blew out their ACL, whatever it is. You know, so it's not that you have to, it wasn't just that one movement. It was that same movement done on over and over and over, and the fact that there was an issue going on all during that time, or at least um, in the months or weeks leading up to that moment, that where that athlete was at high risk. Um, my goal is to help athlete management specialists, uh, teams of the medical specialists for teams, um, specifically to appreciate what's going on and how that foot can contribute to ankle injuries, obviously foot injuries knee injuries, um, even uh, perpetuate back issues and things like that, and try to wipe that out and, and take that off their slate. And, you know, through whatever needs to be done, whether it's focusing on the hips, focusing on the core, um, you know, the glutes, trying to get everything as strong as possible so that that, um, that mitigation of, the, of those problems takes care of it, which a lot of times it does not. And that's the thing. They keep doing the same thing and they're not, they don't always understand what to look for uh, when it comes to the foot or the ankle and what's going on. I mean, that's kind of where I come in, but try to give them other opportunities uh, to, to mitigate these injuries, to mitigate or these risks and to enhance performance whenever we can so that uh, the athletes can continue to do what they want to do. The teams are getting the benefit of the athletes. And then otherwise, if it's just individual athletes that they can continue to perform and uh, get better and better um, in whatever their selected sport is. Mm-hmm. Cool. I mean, you mentioned a, l- a little while ago that um, about the difference between turf and grass. And there's some there's some international soccer going on tonight that I know has been played in Eastern Europe or something. In it, and they've got, there's obviously regulations to allow um, them to use use AstroTurf. But so what, so what is obviously a bit of controversy around that and links to injuries and things, but what are you seeing on, you know, from a, a pressure mapping point of view and issues around the foot and ankle with grass compared to turf? 
Well, I'm finishing up uh, a chapter that I'm writing on American football and its relationship with shoe uh, shoes. And uh, a lot of the studies that have been done, I mean, the thing that's happened in the last several years, probably five to 10 years specifically, there aren't huge differences between foot, American football shoes and soccer shoes. Um, maybe size, because you know <laughs> American football players are a little bit larger than most <laughs> soccer, average soccer players. We won't talk about uh, uh, Australian uh, rules football or anything like that. Those guys are big too. It's just a different kind of big. Um, but uh, you know, when it comes to size, maybe uh, whether it's a it's a high top uh, boot or shoe, um, you know. It, but when it comes to stud configurations, um, depths of the studs and the overall make of the shoe, they've made them much more sleeker, um, sexier looking as far for all of them, because that's what everybody wants is it sells those shoes to the larger public. You know, it's one thing to sell them to a, a team of professionals. That's great for Nike. You know, that looks that looks good on them. But what it really sells is that team and that sexy looking shoe then sells to the public at large, especially in Europe and in the UK, where you guys are crazy, much crazier about soccer than we are in uh, the U.S., although it is growing by leaps and bounds here. There's no, absolutely no question. Um, but it's the same thing with football. They want to wear the shoes that they see their their heroes wearing, their, their football heroes, the soccer heroes. Uh, and, you know, the, the problem is um, there's not a lot known by uh, high school athletes or uh, uh, college athletes or college coaches on what's exactly going on. And there have been quite a few studies done on, um, <clears throat> let's say, release points. When does that shoe uh, grab into the turf, whether it's astroturf, you know, artificial turf, or whether it's grass? Um, what type of stud component um, tends to dig in much more closely so that when the, if an athlete's being tackled, whether soccer or football, they may get trapped in that position and then they're going to get rolled over um, and have an injury. Or are they going to injure themselves when they've captured their foot and they go to cut um, in a certain direction? And they may end up with a knee injury or an ankle injury or something something like that, whether it's non-contact or contact. Um, so release points of, of the stud makes a difference. Uh, you know, in, in general, to be perfectly honest, from everything I've read, if you really don't want to get injured playing football or soccer, wear a turf shoe. If you wear a turf shoe, it has the lowest release point. It, you know, it's, it's enough to keep you going. Um, and maybe it's not enough to let you cut as fast as you want to all the time if it should get slick. But in general, if you go down, whether it's because of your cutting too closely or somebody taking you down, you're much less likely to have an injury because of that, uh, the shoe affecting other things than if you have a shoe with some other type of uh, stud component, whether it's for grass or for art artificial turf. Um, the torsional stiffness of the shoes makes a difference. How stiff the upper is, that can affect what's going on at the... Um, uh, the ankle joint, uh, you know, just uh, how the shoe will twist and release. And, and those are the primary components. And they affect ACL injuries, um, uh, fifth metatarsal fracture injuries, and other things like that. You know, the, the heel height of the shoe. Most of these shoes tend to be flat. Um, you know, they just they don't have any extra heel height like, say, uh, um, uh, base, American baseball shoes, which are a little bit more like uh, running shoes, not exactly at all, but but much more similar with a cleat built into them um, than, than most of the other shoes. Uh, even a lot of basketball shoes have very little heel height and some have a little bit of heel height. That makes a difference because a lot of athletes, because they're constantly running, uh, constantly cutting, they're constantly lowering their center of gravity, which means their knees are flexed, 
they get tight att tendo Achilles, they get a uh, tight Achilles component. And then when they try to walk normally, that heel has a tendency to come off the ground early. And you can pick that up with inch pressure um, or even just regular pressure mapping, having them walk over these things. And when they've got a tight tendo Achilles, you don't necessarily want to change that because sometimes if it's a jumping sport, it's, you know, been studied where supposedly they can jump higher because of that. Possibly. I think it's more about energy return and uh, elastic recoil of the tendon than it is about the stiffness or the lack of dorsiflexion itself. Uh, the two may kind of overlap at times, but one doesn't necessarily negate the other. Um, and the other one may absolutely negate the other in that if there's no elastic recoil, recoil of any decent effect, you're not going to spring up very high whatsoever. It's a lot more to jumping than, than, than meets the eye, obviously. But, um, but when it comes to your cutting sports, you know, it's what's going on with that shoe and how that's affecting things. Um, how much pressure are you impacting in the central metatarsal areas? You can pick that up with the shoe, and there have been some studies on that. Uh, how much in, in, uh, pressure and force is there at the lateral columns when they cut in certain ways? Um, all of these things make, make, uh, make a difference. Um, certain bladed cleats have at times been shown to have higher lateral forces on that outside edge, which is where the fifth metatarsal is. And beyond the fact of when they initially introduced bladed cleats and guys were sliding into each other and cutting each other up, even just plastic bladed cleats because of their longer um, potential to hold, you know, can again trap you in that area. And if they've for whatever reason, because of the, the torsional stiffness or just the overall stiffness of uh, lack of flexibility of the forefoot area can then lead to injury in that fifth metatarsal or just an increased pressure risk on a regular basis. And if that athlete has very little tolerance for something like that and is wearing a shoe and is making those cutting motions on a regular basis, it's a recipe for disaster as far as fifth metatarsal fractures are concerned. Cool. So you mentioned a little bit in the, at the start but we just want to expand on how the issues that we've you've kind of brought up about um, kind of fifth metatarsal and things like that, but how, how work on the foot and ankle can impact further up the chain? Sure. Um, I, mean, I, very, I have a pretty specific segmental analysis of the foot and ankle where I look at things like dorsiflexion stiffness of the first ray and the fifth ray in comparison to the central metatarsal heads or the central rays. Um, ankle joint dorsiflexion, whether the knee is fully extended or whether you use an ankle joint lunge test, L-U-N-G-E, which is really the only one that's been studied in depth to give you um, good, repeatable information on how much flexibility or how much dorsiflexion uh, extension there is within the, with the foot compared to the ankle. Um, now, obviously, that test only... Um, We'll study the soleus because there's two muscles. That, there's two muscles that make up the Achilles complex primarily: the soleus and the gastrocnemius. Gastrocnemius attaches above the level of the knee, so when the knee's fully extended, that's the one. That's when you want to test the gastrocnemius. When the knee's flexed, that's when the soleus comes into play. Again, most professional athletes or high-level athletes doing some type of running or something like that, their knees are in a flexed position quite often to lower their center of gravity, depending on how they move, and that soleus can come into play. Uh, much, much more importantly, especially for running athletes as well. Um, so the two very, very important things to to understand and appreciate because, um, again, elastic recoil of that tendon and then also, which is which relates to energy return. Um, and if you have very little of that and a lot of stiffness in that joint, you're going to end up with a high potential for Achilles tendon injury, whether it's a tendonitis, tendinopathy, or rupture. Um, uh, if you've got lack of ankle joint dorsiflexion, 
um, in relation to high pressures underneath the fifth the lateral column or a very little dorsiflexion excursion of your lateral column that can increase risk because the heel will come up early you'll spend more time in the lateral outside portion of the ball of your foot and you're going to increase the pressures and torque on that fifth metatarsal for a prolonged period of time so those two relate to each other very much um, and then there are other components where the how the rear foot sits uh, whether somebody stands maximally pronated, um, you know, what the ranges of motion are. Uh, obviously, as I've said at the ankle joint, but also at the first MPJ, there are functional releases of the uh, first ray as well, where um, any type of pressure underneath the soft tissue can uh, elongate that plantar fascia and cause a uh, what we call a functional hallux limitus, which is a limitation in the in the first first MPJ function that's functional. Whereas structurally, when you remove any pressure in that area, they can have full range of motion up to 100 degrees or even more for some people. But in uh, if you've got pressure underneath the ball of the foot uh, in this area, what that does is that stops limitation functionally. So it's almost as if they've got an arthritis in that area, and that can change the pressures from the center of force uh, from pressure mapping. Suddenly, they'll avoid that area and move more lateral, which again can impact central ray function, metatarsal stress fractures in the central rays, or fifth metatarsal fractures, or metatarsalgia, neuroma, any of those things. So a lot of these things come into play. So it's shoes. It's what's the what does the foot do, number one? Um, how does it function? Um, uh, what is the What are the ranges of motion? <clears throat> what are the structural analysis? And then what's, what's going on with the shoe? What type of um, uh, sport are they playing? Any of those things, it all comes into. So it's it's a, it's a lot to take in, um, and it's just one of those things that I'm passionate about doing from lots of different perspectives that I've read a lot on and and actually written on as well um, in 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 different uh, publishing formats. So um, you know, it's 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 once you kind of have a appreciation for what's going on, it makes sense. So cool. So how can um, I think again? I think you may have touched on it a little bit. How can orthotics um, enhance or, or otherwise um, things that are going on the foot and ankle, but also foot up the chain? Sure. Um, you know, orthotics and shoes are, when you're dealing with professional athletes, can be, well, shoes we already know can be problematic and they can also be non-problematic from, from what I've been talking about. Um, but if the athlete continues to still have issues that aren't being mitigated through traditional um, coaching and training uh, and therapy effects uh, via, via strengthening at the, the hips, the core, and other things like that, uh, you know, the middle chain moving down as opposed to the foot moving up. Um, if those things aren't working, you don't have a lot of other options other than working to modify the shoe, other than putting a device inside the shoe. Um, and because I'm a podiatrist, it's one of the things that I first started working with um, pure and simple before I realized the, the orthotic is only as good as the shoe can quite often only be as good as the shoe that it's working with. Um, and how do the facts that beyond what the, what the foot itself will do. So uh, you have to understand those two interfaces, but you don't have a lot of other points to mitigate some of these injuries. You, they say you can uh, strengthen and uh, increase flexibility in the, in the foot. Um, I've yet to have seen that happen on a regular basis. I just don't see it working. There's, most of these muscles are intrinsic stabilizing muscles. Some of the other muscles are, again, they're there for specific reasons at a specific point, at a specific time during the gait, whether it's running, gait, uh, cutting gait, or walking gait. 
and otherwise they're not supposed to be doing anything. And it's when those things start doing things when they're not supposed to that they become problematic and you get tendinopathies and tendonitis and other things, uh, issues like that. Um, but orthotics are one way to mitigate some of those forces, whether it's at that lateral column, uh, when there's a risk for fifth metatarsal fracture, whether it's using a small heel lift to cheat around a stiff ankle joint where there's just not enough ankle joint range of motion, not, not putting them in stiletto heels, obviously, but just, uh, you know, maybe three millimeters, maybe four millimeters just enough to give enough breathing room so that it changes the way that the forces, the prolongation of the forces, because timing is a huge thing. It's not just how high the force is or the pressure is, it's how long that pressure and force is there, because that makes more of a difference quite often than just the overall pressure uh, um, numerically than anything else. And having zero pressure doesn't always, isn't always a great thing either, depending on what, where you're looking. But the, the orthotic device is kind of a guidance system. And I've been saying this for a few years. You've got missile guidance systems. You've got orthotic guidance systems. And it's not an arch support from the way that I do things. The, the arch will support itself if you allow the foot to do what it needs to do. And that means allowing free range of motion in certain areas like the first MPJ when it's, when it's necessary. Um, allowing the opportunity to cheat around an ankle joint if it has a limitation of motion. Um, and then changing your varus and valgus positioning which is more traditional as far as somebody that has a very flat foot uh, or an overpronator or somebody that has a very high arched foot um, that's a, a, a cavus foot structure that may be a little bit too rigid so sometimes providing a little bit of extra shock, shock absorption is a good thing um, sometimes uh, eliminating some of that shock absorption or making the device a little bit stiffer in certain situations is a good thing you know, it just depends on what the athlete needs and that again goes back to the the, the segmental analysis that I do, and then also the in-shoe pressure, and again, how that all interplays with the the, the shoe of choice for the sport of choice. Mm -hmm. So, just it's just coming to my into my head then after you, after you said that this wasn't in our um, discussed topic, so okay, feel feel free to veto it. Um, I, I'd, I'd spoken to a coach um, maybe a year ago, and they were introducing a lot more kind of injury prevention injury prevention in in um, in air, air, air science, um, talking about um, introducing more specific exercises for the big toe. Is this something that you've seen um, be be used successfully? Or why, really. why, why would they be doing that and why wouldn't you do it? Um, you know, I, I'm open, and, you know, uh, we have a saying in, in the U.S., uh, if you're from Missouri, it's called the show me state, which means, uh, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when you, when I see it, uh, when I see it work regularly, when I've seen it studied um, and verified. Um, and it's not that I, I understand what they're attempting to do, and they think that they can increase stability in that area. Problem is, a lot of times there's already stability in that area. It's a functional stability they're trying to overcome. Um, and quite often it's because the metatarsal is long. And they, how are you going to change that by just working on strength, okay? It's not going to change. You can change that with an orthotic device if you know what to do, um, and you can change those forces. So now that long first metatarsal is no longer the issue, and the flexibility issues are no longer an issue underneath that first MPJ. But as far as doing it just by consciously trying to make that muscle move in such a way that it's going to stabilize the foot, unless you're a ballet dancer, it's not going to work. 
Um, and I, you know, you don't want ballet dancers playing soccer, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not going to work. Let's some know. do, some do. Yeah. You well, may I think they are. At that, you know, uh, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> you know, even Lynn Swan was, uh, was doing some of that. And it's, that's not my point. You know, what my yeah, point, no, is. Yeah, yeah. point is it's a completely different type of uh, sport because you know, it's, it's dance, it's an art, but it's a sport as well. And, Dancers have very specific feet, or they cannot continue to do what they do. You can, you can, and that's the same thing with any type of athlete. If you're a sprinting athlete and a cutting athlete, you have a very specific type of foot. And if you don't have that foot type, you're not going to get to the highest levels. Um, you may be really, really darn good, and you may be able to play professionally, but you'll never be a Messi or somebody else like that. Um, Whereas in, in basketball, you see these huge seven-foot guys that are out there. They can barely touch the rim or dunk because you see them lumber up and down the, up and down the court. They're not cutting. They're not moving fast. Well, there's more to a reason of that than they're just big guys. They've got feet that don't allow them to move that way. When you see the bigger guys who are a little bit trimmer, a little bit thinner, maybe have a little bit more jump in their feet and their legs, who move a little bit quicker, they have feet more like forwards or guards in some instances. Um, Akeem Olajuwon, I'm certain, had that type of foot. You know, and when it comes to a Derrick Rose, he has to have a very specific type of foot to function in a certain type of way. Uh, but that said, exercising that, consciously thinking about it, it just doesn't work. These guys aren't thinking about what they're doing when they're going to put the ball in the goal when they want to put the curve on it. That's beyond. They've already practiced it so many times. It's just nature to them they just do it they know what they want to do they've thought that out but then it's just immediate action it's a reflex action for them for them to think well i better concentrate on making my big toe joint for you you know it, you know i understand what they're trying to do um whatever works i'm all for and if it would work i would be behind it but i've yet to seen any proof that it really does I know that there are people are grasping at that. They want to think that it's going to show some benefit, but the thing is they're not testing it with pressure mapping either. Show me that it works on a regular basis with pressure mapping when they are and aren't doing it. Maybe you'll make a believer out of me, but until then, um, I don't think so. Cool. Okay. Cool. Um, so I just want to move on to a couple of last points um, regarding uh, gait and movement analysis. Okay. So should we be doing it? Uh, and exactly what are, we, what are we looking for when we're doing this? Well, you know, gait and movement analysis is a, is, covers a big section, okay? Um, a lot of what we've talked about so far is just plain pressure mapping and how that uh, comes into play with the foot. Um, now, when people start having issues when it's their hips or their knees or other, thing, other things like that, I need other info because what's going on at that knee, if that knee is a primary problem, as an example, with a basketball athlete I took care of a couple of years ago, had chronic um, weakness in his, on one side, let's say his right knee, had some swelling in that area. MRIs are negative. He had strong glutes, great core. Everything was normal, but they couldn't figure out what was going on. So I got a chance to take a look at him. And he's a big, big, tall guy, seven footer. Um, and I understood two very, very different structurally and functional feet because of an injury it had previously in his life um, when he was younger. And, you know, it's just uh, things that had come into play. And he functioned very differently. Uh, just by putting some tape and some felt pads on him, I changed that up immediately. I could see it visually when I put him on the uh, treadmill with video analysis. You could see the difference instantaneously as well. And then when we did the huge pressure on him, it made a huge difference too. 
So, you know, it's having all of that and seeing all of that, because those angles, how long does that knee stay flexed? How much are they able to get some extra strength or jump off that knee? Video analysis comes into play. That's part of the movement analysis. Uh, the in-shoe pressure is part of the gait analysis as well. It's all important, and the two are very good to use together. But again, it's information overload. If you're not careful, you've got to really understand what it is you're looking for um, and understand of the things that you are looking for or what you're focused on, what can affect it from a higher up in the chain and what can affect it from a lower part of the chain. It seems that a lot of people don't understand or appreciate as well the lower part of the chain and how that affects the upper area. Um, it's not what they work with as much. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way that it is. Um, but having the movement analysis gives you enough of that information that even from a distance, if through telemedicine, uh, if you're like, say, you in the UK, if you I have go take your GoPro and an issue and maybe a couple of sensors, gather some data on somebody that's bothering you, you can send that stuff to me, um, provided I have a couple of other things on ranges of motion, even just from pictures of their feet uh, or even just some short videos or things like that. Now I can start to put together some things and tell you there's a good chance that it could be this or this is what you may need to look for. You know, I can sit that sitting in my recliner at home um, or at my office at work. You know, but that's that's the power of the Internet, the power of uh, video and uh, these wearables that are coming out, becoming more and more accessible to to athletes, to teams and just to people in general, like uh, Apple watches and things like that. <laughs> you know, I'll get my money from Apple later. <laughs> you too. <laughs> you know, that, that said, you know, it's 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 just being able to do that. But the gain and movement analysis is huge. But you got to understand what you're looking for and what and appreciate what you're doing. And you got to take it baby steps to add into that. And if you're not working with a specialist, if you don't have a specialist on board working with you for that, who's really, really understanding what's going on. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that there are not people out there who are much better gait and movement analysis specialists at examining the knee and telling you what's going on. But I will tell you that if I start asking them questions about how that foot is affecting the knee, then they start to get a little bit nervous in most instances. So, you know, I'm I'm no quote by by no means the end all be all best when it comes to understanding the hip, the move, the movement of the hip, the back, and the, and the knee. But I understand how the how the foot affects those joints probably better than than many than the majority of the people that that do what I do. Certainly, I'm certainly in the top one uh, percent. I would think of that, but I trust in the um, definitely in the U.S. and possibly in the world when it comes to that. So at least I certainly hope so. <laughs> so so when you talk about getting a few, getting kind of some the GoPro and things like that, what, what kind of information would you need to see to make a informed decision just from, like you say, sat in your front room watching TV with a laptop on your knee? What, what, what information would you need? Different angles of video. You know, and if I'm looking at the right knee, I'd like to see the knee function from the right side. Um, but I wouldn't also, I would also not mind seeing what's going on on the left side as well. Um, having the video in front as somebody's running towards you, having the video at back. Um, same thing with walking. And again, like, like I said, baby steps, give me the running analysis. Give me the walking analysis. Uh, let me look at those and start to put some things together. Give me the other videos of, uh, joint ranges of motion of the ankle, the certain areas of the foot, um, some overlays of dorsiflexion excursion, things like that of, these are all things that I've put together that the teams can do, um, and we've done this in the U.S. Um, you know, it, it's it's time consuming, and that's that's problematic more than anything else. But it all comes down to how fine tuned do you want 
the help to be, you know, if you want it to be minimal and you want to do a lot of your own stuff, um, you know, I can make some of that stuff available to people and you can certainly work on that. And then if you've got a problem athlete, then you can start to put those things together. If you want the whole team done again, that can be problematic, but it all comes down to how far do you need to delve to get that information. If you're looking for red flags on players, that stuff can be done relatively quickly. Um, if you're looking for getting somebody that nobody seems to be able to fix better, that takes a lot more uh, inf inf information, a lot more brain, brain power and uh, uh, video and, and inch pressure analysis to get to that point. So, you know, there's there, there are different levels, obviously, as, as, depending on what it is that you want to do. Um, but, you know, different different viewpoints from the camera view are very important. If you've got some issue pressure analysis, uh, one of the first things I did with Carl was that he sent me some info on a on a hurdler. Um, and he only had a pressure map that the guy had walked over and then he had the guy kind of jump off. And he was I, I think he would tell you he was a little bit blown away because after I saw some video and just only if I think one side of video on the guy and then I saw his inch or saw the map the pressure mapping on him I was able to tell Carl significant amount of what that guy was doing and how he was functioning and Carl was holding stuff back on me so he already knew some of this and he was kind of blown away that just from the little bit of information that I was able to get that how much I was able to to kind of figure out but you got to have the video with the with the in shoe it really the pressure mapping it really makes a huge difference um, if you can't be there on site, if I'm there on site and I can watch, I can dispense with the video at times. But again, it's it's one of those things. It's it's there, so you can always go back to it if you need to check things later. Um, so if that helps. Yeah, cool. So and this is actually something you do um, yeah. actively as part of your consultancy. Okay. Yep. So you get you getting you getting things from all over the world. Um, U.S. U.S. primarily. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I've got people. I like I said, I know a lot of people in Australia, the UK and other places like that, podiatrists and um, other people who have linked up with me through Twitter, uh, through conferences we've gone through and other things like that. So um, some things come in every once in a while or get an email and somebody wants to pick your brain. It just depends. Um, but, you know, the more information you get, whether it's me or whether it's the people that I'm talking to and they would, I'm sure, say the same thing, you know, more information you can give me, the better I can help you. But uh, yeah, that the international is definitely building. Cool. So one last thing. Um, obviously, Carl's involved with um, Inside Tracker, and there's a, there's lots yes. of things on there, especially on their blog, and obviously what they do as a as a company about blood biomarkers. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about how that impacts the kind of things that you're doing, and how the, the two kind of intertwine? Well, let's take it all back to fifth metatarsal fractures, um, because that's really what it will come back to. Uh, a couple of athletes, Carl and I, have worked together with. Um, with biomarkers, cortisol, uh, sex hormone, um, vitamin D levels specifically. These things, um, we had an athlete we were working on, excuse me, who had some plantar fascial issues, among other things. Made some orthotics for him. He had been doing fantastic. The season was really ramping up. He had a terrible um, second generation um, artificial turf surface that he played on at his university, so it was pretty rigid. Uh, not soft like the new ones with the cinders and things like that or the, the fine particle rubber. And so didn't have as much give. He's, you know, an athlete here in the U.S. at school, and he had to he had to do some work on his own to, to pay the bills. His diet wasn't quite as good as it might have been previously, and things started to fall off as plantar fascia was coming back. And 
I had already done his issue pressure analysis. I'd done a full gain analysis on this guy. I went back and reviewed things. Didn't really see that there was anything that was necessarily different. But when we started looking at his blood biomarkers, his cortisol levels were off the charts. He wasn't eating right. He wasn't getting enough sleep. Um, his heart rate variability was off. All of these things were coming into play. Once those things started coming back into line, plantar fascia went away. So instances like that. Um, but biomarkers, they get vitamin D levels, although you have to be careful where you get your vitamin D levels. There are hospital general lab um, values for vitamin D that tend to be much lower, I think, than what the same um, window that uh, uh, Inside Tracker is looking at. Their optimum zone is very, very focused from a lot of study. These guys are really, really smart. And they've been doing this for a long time, and they're much more focused. And because of them, I personally take uh, 5,000 units of vitamin D per day. Um, and I know I've written some, read some of the things recently where they've said you may even want to bump that up to 8,000 to 10,000 units of vitamin D a day. If you're a dark-skinned athlete, that's going to be even more because they're going to be much more resistant to getting the, the UV rays that are beneficial when it comes to uh, vi uh, creating vitamin D within our own systems. Um, and, you know, for you specifically, being lovely sunny UK, you know, how much sun you guys get on a regular basis, you know, vitamin D is a big thing for you guys because you're just not going to get enough sun, whether you're drinking gallons of milk or not. Um, so supplementation is a huge thing. Tracking those levels makes a difference. Um, so biomarkers are huge. When it comes to doing other things as well that are becoming more popular, like stem cells, um, PRP injections, uh, you know, these things are, we're using our own stem cells, our own blood. Well, the question is, how good is our own blood to help aid us to get better in certain areas, maybe to fix a fracture faster or to take care of a, um, a deficit in our knee where we've had to take a meniscus out or we've got a, a chunk in there because things twisted in the wrong way or to fix an AC or, you know, speed up the return after an ACL injury or repair. If our blood's no good to start with and nobody's really checked our blood, why would we necessarily expect the use of our own stem cells or uh, blood that's been spun down for PRP to benefit us? And I think that that's a problem. And I think that's going to be a problem that's going to get focused on significantly more over the next few years. You know, Taylor Swift's got a song out called Bad Blood, and I think that's just you know perfect example of what's going on for players maybe that do benefit from this and maybe could have benefited even more or faster if they really paid much, much more attention to what their overall biomarkers are from their blood, because then they know that guy's eating Skittles all day long. He's eating hamburgers. No, he's not eating. He's not eating right. We know he's not sleeping. If he's got a, a misfit or something like that to track his sleep, or he's got something on his bed or whatever it is. We, you know, we also, we know he's, we saw him partying all night long too, and, and drinking, drinking, uh, drinking a lot of beer or whatever. Um, these things have an effect that's added stress levels to these guys that think that they're de-stressing when in reality, they're not allowing their body to fully recover for their next, next match, next game, whatever it is that they need to do, or even just for their strength and conditioning workouts that they need to go through the week as they lead up to their next game. Um, you know, if you want to be a professional athlete these days and age, you have to be professional where you've seen that really been led is in your older level athletes. They're like, I want five more years of this. You know, I'm at the peak of my game. I want to stay at the peak of my game because, or maybe I was at the peak and I'm starting to fall off and these younger guys are starting to take my position and I don't want that. And they're still good and they're wily and they're smart and they're experienced. 
And so what do they do? They eat right. They work out. They find the best strength coaches. Maybe they start to monitor their blood and really look at these things much more closely. And then what happens, those are the players. Oh, so-and-so just made a huge comeback. You know, he, we thought he was gone, dead over the last two years. He just wasn't playing at the same level. And look at him now. And three years later, he's doing exactly the same thing. And then what does he do? He retires on top, or she. And um, they feel great about it. But you know what? They figured it out. And they'll tell you, I'm sure, if you interviewed them, if I had done that 10 years ago, I'd still be doing this for another five years. You know, if I had done that, then I've been that much better at what I did. But I was stupid. And I didn't think about those things. So it takes time. Many of professional athletes and high-level athletes, they're young, you know. They don't know any better. But the thing is, the way the coaching environment is changing, um, the way the wearable environment is changing, um, uh, the Internet, everything else, it's just giving us so much information to know. If you really want to be the best, they've got the drive. They want to do that. If they lose the cockiness and start listening to people, start doing these things, it's going to happen more and more. So next thing you know, probably another 10 years, 12-year-olds are going to be paying attention to all this stuff. <laughs> you know, And then we're going to create some really, really monster athletes at some point. Um, you know, The potential's there. But you've got to look at these things because if you're going to understand what's going on, because if I can tell you you've got high pressures underneath your fifth metatarsal and your shoes are crap, and the surface that you're playing on and the way that you cut, you're at high risk. What are your vitamin D levels? Because ultimately that comes into play too. If we know your vitamin D levels are stable, your cortisone levels are stable, you're eating right, maybe that alone will mitigate some of the other issues. But if we can mitigate them all, whether it's getting you to eat right, getting you to sleep appropriately, getting you to de-stress in a, in a better way, not necessarily with alcohol all the time, whatever works, um, putting something in your shoe, that may help to mitigate some of those forces, small, a small amount, or getting your shoe sponsor to make you a slightly different shoe in such a way that it does exactly the same thing without the use of an orthotic. Any of those things can come into play and work better for you. And then again, as playing surfaces evolve over time too, and the manufacturers of shoes start to realize, yeah, maybe we don't want all these ACL injuries on our multi-million dollar athletes. Let's decrease these stud sizes and have them slipping around a little bit. They won't like it, but you know what? They'll still be playing next week. Um, all of these things come into play, and I think you know, you, you know it, it makes a huge difference, whether it's HRV and sleep, but blood biomarkers are huge and will just get bigger and bigger as we move forward. It's incredibly important. So how, how easy is it to get to a, a facility that is able to provide that for just general public? I mean, what might, I, might, might differ over there to over here, but over there specifically. Yeah, and I'm not sure how that would work over there for you. I've done Inside Tracker a couple of times. I mean, for me, it's easy. We've got labs you can go to at any time. All I have to do is go online with Inside Tracker and set that up, and they'll take, and I can go to the lab and set up a draw, show up. They're like, oh, well, you're, they treat you like a VIP. If I came in there with my own regular US insurance, I'd have to wait. But when they when the lady saw that I had set it up this way, she's like, you're a VIP. Come on, I'm going to take you right back now. I'm like, hey, great. I was in and out in seconds, had the blood draw. And by the middle of the following week, because I had that done on a Saturday, probably by Wednesday, I had my blood results back. And then you can go online and really look at the things. What do you need to do? You know, do you need to sleep more? Do you need to de-stress more? Drink less alcohol? What do you need to eat to get better? What do you need to not eat to get better? All of those things are listed on there. It's really a miraculous site. I think it's going to become more and more popular. Um, I've known those guys for about three or four years uh, through Carl. And, uh, you know, it's just, they're, talk about the smartest guys in the room. They're just brilliant. Gil Blander's the guy 
who uh, who started it on. Uh, he's he's a great great guy. I've known Gil for a few years. So if you, if you don't mind me asking, what what kind of costs is it for uh, to get that kind of thing done over there? If you want to get like an ultimate, I, I think it's around uh, seven hundred fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe a little higher than that. Uh, but you can get different levels, obviously, for how much information you really need. Yeah. There's even one where you can get one that'll tell you exactly how old your body is and at least your blood is. Um, do you pay extra for that, or do you not pay as much for that? <laughs> you pay less for that than you do the things. It's a nice introduction, and it certainly will give you a wake-up call. Yeah, um, because it'll give you enough information to you know. Yeah, I guess I better get this last ten pounds off and start eating a little bit better. So you know, but it, it, it's great information, and it, um, they, they, I would like to be able to do some of the things that I'm doing in a very similar fashion to model after their company. In the future, it's gonna. I don't have as many very smart people from MIT or or, or Harvard to uh, to work on that, but uh, maybe in maybe in good time. So you never know. Cool. Well, um, thanks very much for your, all your insight. It's been a, it's been a really good chat and something like I said at the start that we've never had on before. So it was uh, it's been brilliant. So where, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on, kind of consultancy wise and personally, social media? Uh, sure. Um, I'm at. Uh... Boy, I better check before I tell you for sure. I'll mess it up as far as Twitter's concerned. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, Doc. I think it's a. Uh, geez, let me get to it. Doc Orange One at. Um, oh come on, yeah, it's just at Doc Orange One, D O C O R A N G E. Um, you can find me at uh, BreakthroughSportsPerformance.com. And also through uh, Wild Foot and Ankle Institute, which is Wild for Feet, W-E-I-L, the number four, feet.com. And you can find me under the doctors there. And that'll also give you a link to my Breakthrough Sp- uh, Sports Performance website. Um, web Facebook, I do just personal personal stuff on Facebook, so I don't use that for business. But I do LinkedIn as well, so I am on LinkedIn if you want to look me up that way. And then uh, through Twitter. Cool. Well, as always, I'll um, I'll put all the links on the site so people can people okay. can get get in touch via via that if they uh, if they may wish. So, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll let you go and get back to your uh, get back to your afternoon. But really appreciate your time uh, and your insight, and uh, and we'll keep in touch. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you very much. It was nice to meet you. Thanks, mate. Speak to you soon. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to episode fifty nine of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Bruce. Like I said at the start, and like we mentioned in the episode, if you are interested in picking Bruce's brains about any issues that you're seeing with your athletes, feel free to to fire him an email. So just a little quick reminder, it is the second episode of the Pacey Performance webinar series featuring Ian McKeough. So if you are interested in learning about athletic development and the AFL, get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Ian. Thanks for tuning in and I will speak to you soon.